Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week, I am going to be talking about quite a sensitive case, which is one I've wanted to cover since we began doing The Crime Pod, but I've just never felt it was right to do it. But with the anniversary being tomorrow, I think it's fair that the story is shared. So this week, I will be talking about the Dumblane School shooting. This is a disclaimer for anyone that's not sure on the Dumblane school shooting. Samantha, I'm not even going to ask you if you've heard of it, but I think you can tell from the fact it's a school shooting that I'm going to be talking about crimes against children, which is quite difficult to talk about. So if you want to skip this episode, I will not be offended. That is absolutely fine. Um, And some of the details are quite upsetting to hear and to read. So let's begin. So this was national news, this story, and I think anyone that's grown up in Scotland, even England, they will know about the shooting at Dunblane. Like, growing up as a child in Scotland, I knew about Dunblane. I've actually met people who have lost people or knew people who, that lost people in Dunblane. It was a huge, huge change in Scotland, and it's one of those when I'd said to my mum about Dunblane, my mum remembers where we were. I was actually on my first swimming lesson, and my mum had said, well, it wasn't a swimming lesson, it was the first time she took me swimming, and I was only a couple of months old. And... Um, my mum always remembers getting in the car and the radio was really weird. She couldn't work out why there was all these kind of news things and they weren't playing music or anything. And my mum was actually strange. And then when she got home, she put the TV on and that's when she found out about Dunblane. So it was one of those where the whole of Scotland just kind of stopped. So Dunblane, for people that actually don't even know what that is, it is a small town, kind of villagey town in Scotland with a population of roughly 9,000. And it's just on the outskirts of Stirling. It's a quiet, small town, quite scenic and hilly, um, beautiful scenery. It's got like the Dunblane Hydro, which is a lot of reasons why people go. Have you been to Dunblane, Samantha? I think I've only actually been the once. No, I've never. I've um, driven through it on a bus, Mm -hmm. but that's it. Yeah, a bus, but never been. Okay, so in Dumblane, as you can imagine, it's really small and there's only one primary school, which is Dumblane Primary. Now, at the time of this story, it had 600 pupils and its headmaster was Ronald Taylor. Now, this story begins on the morning of March 13th, 1996. Now, it was a beautiful kind of frosty morning, really sunny, that winter sun, which is actually like my favourite weather when it's absolutely freezing, but the sun's so, so low. Now, school begins at 9am, so the parents drop their children off and they head to work and head off for what they think is going to be a normal day. Now, primary one, for those that aren't in um, Scotland, it's age. Like, I went to primary one at, like, four, but it's mainly, like, the age of five turning six. But I went to primary one at four because I'm later on in the year. So it's anything from four to six is in primary one. And they had a teacher named Gwen Mayer. Now, they headed off to their first lesson of the day, which was PE, so that's physical education, which takes part in the gym. Around 9.30, they were playing games in the hall when the door to the gym swung open. There stood a middle-aged man in a long anorak with guns holstered to him. He decided to raise a gun and open fire at the full gym hall, just randomly firing, not aiming at anybody, just completely showering the hall with bullets. 
PE teacher Aileen Harold had an assistant named Mary Blake were injured very early on. Now Aileen was actually shot in the arms and the chest and Mary was shot in the head and in both legs. Now they both managed to crawl into a cupboard in the gym and tried to bring in as many children as possible and they actually took four children in who were all injured. Gwen Mayer, the teacher, was shot and killed instantly. The gunfire was just like never ending. He actually fired 29 shots with one of the pistols when he went into the gym. He then moved up to the east side of the gym, firing six shots as he continued walking and then fired eight shots towards the opposite end of the gym. He then went towards the middle of the gym and fired 16 shots at point blank range at a group of children who'd been incapacitated by his earlier shots. Sorry, I can never say that word, but it also means that they, if you don't know what that means, it means that they basically couldn't have moved. So that's how it ended up being at point blank range. A primary seven pupil and a teacher who were actually walking along the side of the gym outside had heard loud bangs and screams, so looking inside, and the gunman actually saw them, so shot in the direction of the P7 pupil. Um, he was injured by flying glass and then ran away. The gunman then goes on to fire 24 shots in various directions. Now he fires shots towards a window next to the fire exit towards the end of the gym, possibly a random adult who was actually walking across the playground at that time who had nothing to do with it. He then fired four more shots in the same direction after opening the fire exit door. He then left the gym through the fire exit, firing another four shots towards the cloakroom of the library, striking and injuring a woman named Grace Tweedle, who was a member of staff at the school. Now, at this time, they had mobile classrooms in Dunblane, so that meant there was classrooms outside and kind of like shipping containers, I kind of imagine them as so. And there was a mobile container next to the fire exit where Catherine Gordon actually saw him firing shots. And this was the P7 class. Now, she told him to get down on the floor before he then fired nine bullets into the classroom, striking books and equipment. He then went back to the gym hall dropped the gun he'd been using and picked up another one of the four remaining guns he had and shot himself in the mouth. Now, the assistant head teacher, Agnes Olsen, alerted Ronald Taylor of a gunman on school premises because Agnes had heard screaming in the hall. Now, Ronald had heard noises earlier on that day, but actually thought it was construction work that should be happening. So as he headed to the gym, he realised it was not constructed work. He entered the gym to just find the scene and basically, sorry for the graphics, but the scene he would have found was children's bodies all over the floor and an adult male in there who was still twitching when he found them. He ran back to the office and phoned the police at 9.43am. Police arrived seven minutes later and the first ambulance arrives at 9.57 and this ambulance basically makes like transported trips to and from the Stirling Royal Infirmary. Police very quickly secured the scene and documented all the evidence and had to ID the victims. Now, staff at the school actually helped by going into the hall to try and help assist the wounded, but also helped identify the dead. So can you imagine staff at the school going in and confirming what primary one pupil was who so they could can confirm who was injured and who was dead? So the school became a complete crime scene. And actually, just a note, see that P7 classroom that was shot at the mobile classroom? It actually had bullet holes found in the backrest of the seat. So that's how close he would have shot them as well if they hadn't got down onto the ground when their teacher instructed them to. Now, he'd also cut telephone wires. I'm not 100% sure how the teacher managed to then call the police, but he had cut telephone wires in the school. 
He had gone to the school, cut the telephone wires and then walked through the car park and playground in the north kind of west door. He was carrying 743 ammunition cartridges. He then went to the assembly hall first and fired two shots, but nobody was there. Now, the reason I got confused at this because our assembly hall was also our gym hall, but these were two different places. Now, what's really like makes your whole body get goosebumps is the reason he went to the assembly hall first is because he knew that at 9am every Friday the full school had an assembly however he was caught up in traffic that day which is how he ended up not arriving at the school until roughly half past nine so if he had arrived at school at the correct time he had arrived he would have been opening fire to a full school assembly so you're talking everybody was in that would have been at the school would have been in there and he would have injured a lot more people than he already did. Now, he was in the school and alive in the school for just under four minutes and managed to kill 15 children and one teacher. There was also a child that then died en route to hospital. 32 were wounded in total, including those that were fatally wounded. The gunman was ID'd as Thomas Watt Hamilton. Now, I'm going to refer to him as him for the rest of the story, and he and I'm going to refer to everyone else by names as I'm just saying his name once and I will not be saying it again. Now, he had balding hair, thick rimmed glasses and always wore an anorak. So people nicknamed him Mr. Creepy, which it is giving that vibes. He was born on May the 10th, 1952 to mum Agnes, who was 21 and dad Thomas, who was 23. His mum Agnes was adopted as she was born out of wedlock, so was adopted by James and Catherine Hamilton. His parents married in 1950 and went on to have a son. When he was 18 months old, his dad left the family for a bus conductress. He was a bus driver and then he left for a bus conductress. So Agnes moved back in with her parents and her parents went on to actually adopt him in the spring of 1956 when he was four. So he kind of grew up thinking Agnes was his sister, even though Agnes was actually his mum. In 1985, Agnes moved out but left him with the parents and he chose to stay there and actually lived there and as a family they moved to Stirling where he lived until he died. He was described as a strange outsider, didn't have many friends and was classed as a mummy's boy. He enjoyed certain subjects including graphics and was good at reading maps. When he became a young adult he opened a store in Stirling in 1972 called Woodcraft Selling DIY Goods and Fitted Kitchens. So that's what he kind of did, so Woodcraft the store. In 1985, this failed and shut down, so he went on to benefits. His bedroom walls were covered with pictures of young boys in swimming wear, and he had a collection of videos of boys running around as well in his room when this was checked. In the 1970s, he began working with private youth clubs as an assistant leader in the Scouts. Now, Samantha, do you want to actually take this bit and do you want to explain to people what the Scouts are in case they're not sure? Like, I, I think you'll be able to describe that better than I will. Uh, yeah, it's a volunteer group organisation all around the world uh, for young boys and girls. Uh, it was set up, I want to say, over 100 years ago by Lord Powell, Baden-Powell. Um, and yeah, it's just an activity nowadays as well. You, you have a uniform, you can go once a week or so, you go on camps, you learn things. It's really just a big youth organisation. The female equivalent is like the girl guides or you know anything like that but i guess that describes it oh yeah, and thanks. it's run Thank by you, volunteers so like it is run yeah. by you know adults and things um but they're not just they are vetted and stuff nowadays but i mean 
especially probably back in his day and things it was just you know if you're free like volunteer and help the kids yeah no absolutely and um, Sam's kind of spot on it is for boys and girls but back then it would have been mainly for boys so he was then elected to scout leader in a new Sterling branch and he spent unsupervised time around young children but he actually ended up being struck off this is because in 1974 he was inappropriate on two separate camping trips to Aviemore now, the first one, he forgot to book a hostel for him and eight young scout boys, so they all decided to sleep in his van. He claimed he had tried to book, and the scouts accepted this, but told him basically not to do that again. On the second trip, he'd done the same. The children told their parents, and when they got home, they actually then revoked his scout licence. But he refused to give the physical licence over, but as Samantha kind of said, if he was then checked on a system, his licence would be revoked. He was then put on the scout's blacklist, meaning he would never be appointed again, as he tried in Clackman and Shire a few years ago and was declined. So he decides to start up his own private boys club between 1981 and 1996. He started up roughly 15 and they were all aimed for boys between 7 and 11. Activities were football, gymnastics, etc. And the clubs had summer camps in Loch Lomond. So 13 boys would go away for one to two weeks in the summer with just him, which... I understand it was the 80s, but personally, I still think that's weird. So a local woman, Doreen Hager, had her son at one of the camps and her son signed up for the two weeks camps. But after a week, he was desperate to come home and phoned her asking to come home. Her son had told her that he had thrown him off a boat into a lock and he had also taken away all his clothes and demanded they just wear swimming trunks the whole time they're there, the whole camp. So Doreen goes to get her son from these camps, but stayed around for a bit of like a snoop. Now, this camp had none of the facilities it promised, so she actually complained to the police about the running of these camps. The son revealed that, that to the police as well that he was also made to rub sun cream on you-know-who as well. In January 1989, she was out with her friend Jeanette, so I'm still talking about uh, Doreen, sorry, and was actually approached by him in a transit van. Now, he rolled down the window and pulled her up and basically said, like, were you making statements about me to the police? Um, she kind of just tells him, like, fuck off, basically. And then he leans forward and points a gun at her through the van window. So she basically tells him not to point the gun at her fiercely and he drives away and no charges were brought. On May the 16th, 1989, he was actually at the Linlithgow Academy and Doreen approached him with two buckets full of the liquid. So this liquid was made up of, like, suntan oil, fish, liquid manure, wallpaper paste and others and actually poured this over him. As she poured it, she was heard shouting, I'm sorry I couldn't get a wee boy to rub it in for you. Now, police are called and he pressed no charges, as he probably knows there's a lot more to come out about him. Now, George Robertson, a local member of Parliament, actually took his son Malcolm to one of the camps and he described boys running around stripped to the waist and he was just odd. Like, so, like, as a kind of group leader, he just gave off odd vibes. So he actually took his son away. Now, when he went home, after the camp he actually turned up at his door and basically said like he was making allegations about him and the MP said that he had no proof he just felt uneasy around him. In 1991 there were several complaints filed about him and his holiday clubs so the police actually raided one in Loch Lomond. They investigated this camp and said they had the potential for up to 10 charges but he was never charged with any offences. He had been cautioned before and was under some sort of investigation, but this has never been publi published. Sorry, The clubs had to keep moving further and further away from Dunblane so people didn't really know who he was. 
Towards the end of 1995, he attempted to join a gun club, but was refused as the members said they wanted nothing to do with him. So his name became pretty blackened in Dunblane. He sent letters to people asking why they were spreading rumours and um, saying he actually left the scouts, he wasn't banished. So he was sending mail to people in Dunblane saying, like, why are you talking about me, basically? So as I said, his name becomes pretty tarnished around the village. So I'm going to go back to the investigation. So the home where he lived um, on the day of the shooting with his parents, well, his grandparents was searched and the police found he had more than 1,000 ammunition. They found a telephone book with the page lying open at Dumbling Primary School's number. There was loads of photos from his camps of boys and some in some states of undress. And he, they also found a collection of boys swimming trunks as well. So he had them in the house. On March the 21st, 1996, the public inquiry was opened and they'd heard from the police who knew him before the shooting and members of the public. So the report was published by Lord Cullen in September 1996. He suffered from a persecution complex and he basically thought that all the boys' families were out to get him, really. He also believed he had some sort of personality disorder, but this was never like officially confirmed. He had grudges against the scouts and the police for all the mistreatment he'd had over the years, even though he was definitely the one that was doing it to get this mistreatment. Um, so most people found him unusual and he had no signs of mental illness. The post-mortem showed he was not under any substances the day of the shooting. Um, financially, he was in a lot of debt. He had over £8,000 due in credit cards and loans. He had applied for a loan in 1996, however, this was refused. He had no income and actually was in debt to his council tax. So he was kind of just dossing around, really. Now, there's lots of conspiracies that have come around about him as well a lot saying that the reason he was never charged for things is because he had some sort of police protection so if you think about this like why did he never get charged or looked at for any of these boys camps well he was a mason so he was part of the masonic lodge and he had a good connection with a senior police officer through this so there's talks of him actually being protected by the senior police officer now i kept researching going down all the conspiracy theory holes like I always do and there was also talks of there being a connection to a paedophile ring in Dunblane as well this is really not confirmed and as I said this is just conspiracy but there's a conspiracy that he was involved with that and so was a senior police officer which is why no charges were ever brought because they knew that would all come out about the police now it was doubted a lot but why did the police never do anything before because actually if they had this could have maybe been prevented now I'm going to try and speak of some po like positives of this story which is obviously very difficult in this situation but the reaction from Dunblane was so such a strong community so due to the public outcry as well the gun laws in Scotland were changed immediately so only now in Scotland you can have a sporting rifle and this is since Dunblane which is why you know there's never any gun issues here so this eventually goes across the UK and we actually have some of the best anti-handgun laws in the world so we're actually now on a 40-year low of offences. In 2018, 41 out of over 5 million Scots were affected by guns, either shot or killed or being caught with a weapon, etc. So that's, that's any gun offence. There was 41 out of 5 million in 2018. Firearms are so strange. Like over here, I can't, I've, I've never ever physically seen a gun. I can't imagine. It's just not a thing over here. There's also a beautiful memorial garden in the town cemetery. It's lovely. I've been and it's really lovely. And actually most of the victims of the school shooting are buried there. And there's a fountain and a plaque with all the victims' name. Now, to finish off, I know this is a shorter case, but I've said everything I can I could say, is something I've done this episode is actually leave out the shooter's name, which is unusual because if you're telling a story about somebody 
and especially when he's such a key part you normally want to say his name because I kind of you don't want to stumble over and I'm sorry if you've missed some parts because I've said he but I just didn't feel like I wanted to give him any more glory than he thought he wanted because I don't want to leave this episode and have you finished it and just remembering his name I'm going to give you some names I'd like you to remember instead Gwen Mayer 45 Abigail McClellan aged 5 Victoria Clydesdale aged 5 Sophie North aged 5 Ross Irvin aged 5 Mary Macbeth aged 5 Melissa Curry aged 5 Megan Turner aged 5 Kevin Hassel aged 5 John Petrie aged 5 Joanna Ross aged 5 Hannah Scott aged 5 Emma Crozier aged 5 Emily Morton aged 5 David Kerr aged 5 Charlotte Dunn aged 5 Brett McKinnon aged 6